2: Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their businesses and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage these trends to create strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series, focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct professor at several universities in the U.S. and one in Germany. I am delighted to have Barbara Kellerman with us today. Barbara is a quintessential scholar of leadership, approaching leadership from multiple disciplines. She delights in poking and prodding to see what turns up and then synthesizing her observations and analysis into books filled with big ideas discussing overarching sweeping trends in leadership and followership. Throughout her careers, her books have challenged the existing orthodoxies and created new contours to, to guide the field forward. She wrote bad leadership when books promoting good leadership were de rigueur. Women in leadership challenged male-normed leadership models. Leadership argued for and presented a canon on leadership literature going back several thousand years and The End in Leadership provided an insightful critique on leadership industry. Her recent fashioning of leadership as an interconnected triangular system of context, followers, and leaders is explored in followership and hard times. Barbara, who frequently earns the title of Top 50 Business Thinkers from Forbes and World's Top 30 Management Professionals, ranking 13 by global guru, is a sought after speaker around the world. In addition to writing her own blog, Kellerman is a regular contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, the Boston Globe, LA Times, and the Harvard Business Review, and she frequently appears on BBC, CBS, NBC, CNN, and NPR. So, Barbara, it is amazing to have you with us. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you so much, Maureen. I appreciate it.
2: So, the The purpose of this Innovative Leadership Show is really to help leaders think about what they are doing now and innovating or updating their leadership internal algorithm so that their behaviors change along with the world in which we're operating. And, Barbara, you are the perfect guest, and I'm, again, delighted that you're willing to join us. I hope that today what, what listeners walk away with is some... Ideas and kernels to cause them to question what they're doing now and think about how they might change their behavior as we move into this next, right now, political cycle it, it, where countries are changing, not just the U.S., but around the world, changing their mindset a bit on connectivity and collaboration, which leads us to, to really evaluating in this current context how are we leading? So let's start with, can you give us a little bit more background? Obviously, your CV is one of the most amazing I've, I have seen. How did, how did you come to do what you're doing?
0: Um, well, I get asked that question sometimes, Maureen, and uh, I go back really to two sources. One is I remember as a very little girl, being very interested in the power dynamics among little girls. I probably don't cool. have to tell you, that some little girls, and this is maybe the same for boys, but I was a girl, so I was surrounded by the little girls, uh, I kind of noticed that some little girls were very powerful, and it's a very um, politically incorrect word to use, but Still, it was my experience. Bossy and other little girls were much more passive and much more, as we typically use the word, followers. So I just remember being fascinated by that as a very young child and I also grew up in a household which was extremely political. So I think I was interested in politics from a very young age. I did not know that I wanted to be a leadership person until really I was in graduate school. I did uh, graduate studies at Yale when um, I got my PhD in Russian and East European studies and then a PhD in political science. And when I was a student there, believe it or not, as odd as it sounds now, the word leadership was not really in fashion, which I didn't quite understand then, although now I think it's being used ad nauseam, but uh, it was really only at Yale where I thought, you know, this is really lively stuff. So I began by coming, uh, becoming a bit of an expert on the American presidency, most of my early books are about the American presidency. My dissertation was on a German political leader, Willy Brandt, who was chancellor. Um, but uh, gradually, I left behind the specifics, and I would certainly say in the last 10 or 15 years, everything I've done has been about leadership writ broad, political leadership, corporate leadership, American leadership, Chinese leadership, uh, Argentinian leadership. So uh, re- really in the last decade plus, I have focused on leadership in every aspect.
2: Thank you. And so you, you've been involved with mod- most major leaders, uh, university leadership programs and have written a lot about the transitions in leadership and how, how it is changing. Um. What's most interesting to you right now, especially in this well, kind of political context?
0: Yeah, well, I would say that uh, <laughs> two things have interested me about what I, first of all, I call the business that I'm in the leadership industry because it's now. A multi-million dollar business annually. It's a global business. It's very big in the United States, but by no means only in the United States. So I consider it a big business for the last 30, 40 years, which it is. A lot of people make a lot of money saying they can teach people how to lead. Um, And I would say that I started as rather a traditional leadership scholar But again, as you kind of suggested in your introduction, in the last uh, decade, I would say with the book Bad Leadership, which uh, was published in in 2004, Since that book, I have really deviated from conventional wisdom, so I am every bit as interested in bad leadership as in good leadership. I do not understand why the leadership industry is so oblivious to the ubiquity of bad leadership. By the way, I define bad uh, along a spectrum from ineffectual to downright evil, uh, the book I wrote after that was called Followership. I similarly do not understand why the leadership industry is so focused on leaders and so uh, disdainful of, ignorant of, neglectful of followers. It does, after all, take two to tango. And I would say with the book titled The End of Leadership, which came out in 2012, What's interested me most to respond to your immediate question, Maureen, has been the shift in balance of power and influence from leaders to followers. Now, this is most evident in liberal democracies. It's equally evident, excuse me, in the corporate sectors with CEOs and all other kinds of leaders, religious leaders, educational leaders, leaders in the press. There's really no sorts of leaders that are exempt. Uh, but the, the shift in the balance of power, which is partly cultural, partly because of technology, meant that in order for leaders, and we see this as a global phenomenon, in order for leaders really to maintain control, they have, to be, have had to become, certainly in the political sector, considerably more autocratic.
2: It's interesting, because as you go back to bad leaders, I just in the last half hour, finished a blog post, and I made reference to the term fragging, uh, which I think was popularized in the Vietnam War by troops shooting their bosses or injuring their bosses in various ways. So it seems like bad leadership, not that that's a military-only issue. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I agree that we still don't give enough attention to it and we are certainly in an era where many leaders, and even the concept of leadership, I think for lots of people, it, who would want to do that given what we see, the bad behavior from across all sectors?
0: Well, do you mean who would want to be a leader? Is that what you're at? What's, I, I'm not sure I understand Sorry. your question, Maureen. Is it about who would want to be a leader
2: or, or what?
0: No, sorry.
2: Um, can you say a little bit more about bad leadership?
0: Well, I I am, uh, you know, I remain as stunned as I was in 2004, and I kept trying to do something about it <laughs> with precious little effect. Um, I just remain stupefied that although we are very aware, you'd have to be a complete idiot not to be aware of how ubiquitous bad leadership is. I remain stupefied by the fact that the leadership industry, people who teach leadership, people who study leadership, are so intensely focused on how to develop good leaders and pay nearly no attention to the problem of bad leadership, whether it's in the workplace, in a large organization, in a small business, whether it's in, again, education, religion, the media, uh, corporate America, uh, in China, in Russia, uh, in, the, in the White House. You know, why do we not study? Uh, why do we not pay attention to? Why do we not ask the question? of how to deal with bad leadership when it's so ubiquitous. Somehow, and I think it's you know probably the reasons for it have to do with where the money is to be made, the money is generally to be made, the big money in the leadership industry is generally to be made by people who claim to be able to teach people how to be good, as in successful leaders. There's much less money to be made, or at least much less obvious money to be made by talking about uh, bad leadership, even though if, for example, you Google the words bad bosses, you will be inundated by how many, uh, how many different sites there are. So we know bad leadership, whether it's mean or callous or corrupt or ineffective, or as I said earlier, even evil, we know it's a ghastly problem endemic to the human condition, but somehow the leadership industry by and large ignores it.
2: So, Barbara, given all that we're talking about, there are obviously things that you recommend. What if I'm looking across my organization and I'm thinking, yeah, I've probably got at least one person who isn't up to par, and I may actually have some people who are just downright bad, but I may not know what to do about it. I may have thought about coaching or something like that. What, from your lens, what would you recommend people do if they've got folks working for them that are bad?
0: Well, of course, uh, Maureen. The answer to your question depends on where you're sitting. In other words, where you stand depends on where you where you sit. So you mentioned earlier, but I think I'll answer the question now by going back to the point you made. I never, never anymore talk just about leadership. I always talk now, whether it's talking or writing about the leadership system that system has three parts it's very simple it's a little more complicated than just fixating on the leader but it's not much more complicated so this this the leadership system to which i always now refer has three parts no single part is more important than the other two so part one is the leader or leaders i certainly never denigrate the importance of the leader. Part two is the other players. We can call them followers. We can call them stakeholders. You can call them employees. The bottom line is who else is in the system. And the third is, again, of equal importance, is the context. Are we talking about a large organization? Are we talking about a small group? Are we talking about a city? Where is this leadership situation taking place? So the response to your question about what do you do about bad actors depends on are you the leader or are you a If you want to use the term superior and subordinate, are you the superior or are you the subordinate? Are you a team member? This is a member of your team. Uh, As I said, as soon as you start analyzing things, not just in terms of the leader, but in terms of leader, other people, other players, followers, again, whatever you want to call them, and the context within which you're situated, then you can start to answer your question with some measure of intelligence in leadership. Generally, there is no blanket response. It is always, the response always depends on the situation within which you're trying to respond to the question. So what might work in my group or organization would not necessarily work in your group or organization.
2: Which makes sense and is probably part of why it's so challenging to fix.
0: I would agree with that. I think it is challenging to fix. By the way, the thing that usually comes up is not the superior or the leader trying to dispense with a bad follower, but people who feel they have, let's say, a bad boss or they have a bad president or they have a bad mayor or they have a bad, um, you know, rabbi or priest or reverend Uh or principal or superintendent. How does one get rid of people who are, quote, bad Again, depending on how bad is defined. It's a terrific problem, and the leadership industry, by and large, completely ignores it.
2: You know, it's interesting as a coach that I'm often called in to fix, quote, bad, and there there is a presumption that I can coach them out of the problem, which is why we do coaching, and yet I've not run into anyone where the problem was only the person. Exactly. Exactly my experience as context is totally part of the issue.
0: Exactly. I, I mean, I, I don't really do specific leadership coaching because, as I always say to my students or my audiences, uh, I don't teach people how to lead, but I try to get people to think about how leadership is constructed. And so if I were coaching, I would very rarely analyze a problem in terms of a single individual. Almost always it needs to be analyzed systemically, that is, the individual, that the leader. Uh, the other people, followers, stakeholders, and certainly the context within which leaders and followers are embedded.
2: So on that, let's go on, on break. I love the the comment that it's rarely, if ever, the individual alone. The individual certainly contributes to it, but it is the individual within that context that really ends up creating either the brilliance or the catastrophe.
0: Exactly, and in interaction with other people.
2: Thank you for clarifying that. We're going to go on break. We will be right back with Barbara Kellerman.
1: Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit metcalf associates.com. You are listening to innovative leaders driving thriving organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guests today, please call in to 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program.
2: So, Barbara, you were talking about the interaction between the individual, the system, and with each other. And we've talked a little bit about now what makes bad actors. Is is that generally a fit within context? Is it a lack of awareness? Is it skill or is it will or some of all?
0: Well, again, Maureen, it it is so dependent on who we're talking about and who are the other players. And, you know, we can, uh, since we're talking at a moment in time when everybody uh, who's certainly an American, but I think globally as well, is fixated on Donald Trump, uh, for those people who are not especially enthusiastic, they're focusing laser-like on the individual, but I would remind everybody that there are a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump. And there is something about the times in which we live and the country in which we live at this moment in time that got this man elected president. It's stupefying in some senses because, among other things, he's had zero political experience. The idea that we would, for example, promote a business leader to be CEO who's had zero corporate experience is inconceivable or an educational leader. And yet here we are, so to speak, promoting to the White House somebody who has had literally held no no elective office and has not had any direct political executive experience whatsoever. So, but there we are. You know, this guy didn't magically wave a wand and, and get into the White House, but he's going to be inaugurated in a couple of days. And he's going to be inaugurated because a lot of the American people obviously still somewhat less than Hillary Clinton, but many millions of Americans thought he would be the perfect president for this moment in time, or at least better than his leading opponent. So if you want to understand what's going on in the United States, it is inadequate and insufficient to focus on, and I would even say fixate, which the American media does and most of us tend to tend to do to obsess about, fixate on this single individual. We need to understand it as I suggested earlier uh, in terms of both the context within which we're operating and also uh, all those people who decided he would be
2: the, the the
0: the better person to be in the White House over the next four years.
2: So I read something this weekend on the global reaction to lim- uh, liberal democracy. And that it's not. While it is an American phenomena, it is also happening around the world. And th- this specific piece was talking about France and what's likely to happen there. Given your background in politics, and I'm I'm not wanting to take sides on either either side, but from a leadership perspective, what what is causing this shift? Well, I I have. Uh
0: written and spoken fairly widely on just the shift that you're talking about, Maureen. This is absolutely not just American phenomenon. We're seeing it globally, we're specifically seeing it in countries such as Russia, which is more authoritarian now than it was five years ago, China, which is more authoritarian now than it was five years ago, Egypt, uh, Turkey, certainly, Erdogan and Turkey. So the question, uh, as I suggested earlier, is why is this happening in the United States and you talking about France. Why did people, uh, contrary to every poll and every expectation, why did the Brits vote to quit the European Union? Why do we have Brexit? So this uprising against liberal democracy is, uh, again, by no means an American phenomenon. And I would argue it goes back to, our, to to a discussion that I started to have with anybody who cared to listen in the end of leadership uh, Partly it's the historical trajectory, meaning followers have gotten more emboldened and are more willing to speak up than they have ever been before. So the changing culture is one reason, which is, you know, we can go into that if we feel like it. Certainly the changing technology, which I uh, touched on a few moments ago, the fact that people can now uh, speak up and out in a way that they have never before historically been able to do That makes leading in liberal democracies very, very difficult because followers are so – that is, ordinary people – are so difficult and recalcitrant and judgmental and critical and harsh – and the media is ubiquitous, and it's social media, and it's twenty four seven old media, and it makes ordinary leadership, as we, for example, in the United States of America, or generally in Europe, certainly in Western Europe, have been used to liberal democracy, it makes liberal democratic leadership exceedingly hard. And so what we have seen in response to what is perceived to be ineffectualness, for example, how many times have we heard that the American political system is broken, in response to this perceived ineffectualness, voters are opting for the so-called strong man. In some cases, it's the strong woman, not very often, but Marie Le Pen is certainly in France an example. Um, But the turn, to the strongman and the capacity of the strongman, whether, again, it's in Turkey or in Egypt or in Russia or in China, to maintain control, even though they are more authoritarian, is uh, in response to the perceived ineffectualness of liberal democracy, which, in turn, is a response to followers who make leading in liberal democracies exceedingly difficult.
2: Wow. As you're speaking, one of the things I'm thinking is that the quote "strong man creates a sense of safety and security in a world that is innately right now unsafe and insecure."
0: indeed Ab- absolutely true. Now again there's a there's a interestingly, I shouldn't say again, I should say interestingly, there's a gap between what is and what we experience as, what is reality and what we experience as reality. In fact, Americans, for example, many Americans, even with the income inequity and the dwindling middle class, if you go back 50, 75 years, most Americans are living far better now than they did 100 years ago. Uh, and the terrorism in the United States of America has so far been relatively scant, but because of the media and because of extremely high and still rising level of expectations, we end up feeling dissatisfied, and so we bitterly complain, and it makes leadership from the federal government very difficult no matter who is sitting in the White House and Mr. Trump is bound to find that indeed he has already started to find it when he has resisted the idea that the Russians have interceded and he's resisted the intelligence community he has found that people will uh, stand up to him so uh, he's had a relatively easy ride so far but I'm not sure that will continue once he gets to the White House
2: if it continues for him, he would be the only leader, in my opinion, who, who gets to, to have an easy ride. Well, again, the people like Putin and
0: people like Ce- people like Putin in Russia, people like Sisi in Egypt, people like Erdogan, although it's been difficult lately in, in, uh, in Turkey, uh, they have had, quote, an easy ride because every time there's been resistance, they've, you know, gotten rid in one or another way of their opponents. So the recent, the relatively recent rise in authoritarianism is in response to the difficulties of governing when we let people have their say. It's hard if we let people have their say. So, you know, Trump's impulse might be to shut people up. It'll be interesting to see how successful he is in that.
2: So again, that brings us back to the idea of context and in this world of the world democracy technology people have a say what changes about if if we're not talking the strongman approach so there is that i can um silence my opponents but if i can't do that how do i change as a leader well i'm not sure if you're you know what what
0: exactly you're talking about you're talking about political leadership what are you talking about
2: Let's let's shift to corporate leadership. So I have a a job in a company, and we've got Yammer yeah. or whatever. Okay, and
0: let's let's we'll, talk let's, about let's, corporate leadership. That's fine. We'll switch gears. So corporate leadership, like political leadership, is a lot more yeah. difficult than it used to be. Uh, the rewards are still great, certainly the financial rewards but by and large, leaders in business, leaders in education again leaders in the in religion they don't get the respect that they used to we're very quick to criticize they have to worry about a lot of things they didn't have to didn 't used to have to worry about um, and so what you're getting is uh, Shorter tenures, you know, we can talk about corporate leaders, we can talk about, again, educational leaders. By and large, leaders are in office less, less long than they used to be, and they have to watch for a range of things that they didn't used to have to watch for. If you're talking corporate leaders, for example shareholder activism, uh, which is much greater now than it used to be, including shareholder extreme activism, you know, a few rich people who come in and simply try to upend the CEO. They have to pay attention to boards of directors. Boards of directors, by and large, used to be in the hip pockets of uh, CEOs. Uh, That no longer is the case in the last 10 years. By and large, boards have gotten... uh, Stricter. They are uh, obliged to pay closer attention and monitor more closely the CEO. CEOs have to watch for the press, whether the press is defined in traditional terms or whether it's social media. Uh, CEOs used to be able to control information. It used to go out totally from the corporation to the customer. Now the customer is just as likely to talk back and to go online and complain bitterly about something that a corporation has done. So, uh everything that I have said about uh political leaders applies equally to corporate leaders. As we also know, commanding control control style of corporate leadership is less successful now than it used to be. So if you divide leadership up into power, into resources of authority, and into resources of influence, by and large, leaders, corporate leaders are less able to rely on power, less able to rely on authority, and therefore obliged to rely more now than they used to have to in the past on interpersonal influence. It's harder to lead in the corporate sector just as it is harder to lead in the uh, public sector.
2: So if you were teaching a new leader in this current context, what would you – I heard interpersonal. Is that the primary focus that you would take or – and also it sounds like analyzing the context – and yeah, well, you're They're, they're particularly with the
0: correct with the second. I, uh, You know, if I had to redesign, if I were queen of the leadership industry, I would de-emphasize the fixation on the self, on self-awareness and 360-degree feedback, and I need to improve my skills and the self. To me, the self-focus is really misplaced. So if uh, coaches now, people like you and leadership teachers and instructors and coaches and consultants of all kinds, they generally focus on the individual and on improving the skills of the individual, and I'm not opposed to that. But if that occupies a 90% of a coach's time, I would say it should occupy 30% of a coach's time. And the other 30% should be spent uh, teaching a leader to understand the context within which he or she is operating, and teaching a leader to pay greater attention to all the different stakeholders, all the different people that he or she needs to bring along in order to lead reasonably effectively.
2: So that makes sense that I'm, I am focusing externally. I need to know myself and manage myself and, and not do anything ridiculous, and then turn my focus to the environment and the impact I'm having on it? Is that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, again, I'm not, uh, Maureen, I'm not suggesting one shouldn't focus on the self and managing the self and being self aware and managing your appetites and all those things. I think that's just fine. But I just think that we. Excuse me. We in the leadership industry overemphasize it and underemphasize other other ways of educating, training, coaching, etc. Um, uh, leaders. Their leader, leadership is about a lot more than self-management.
2: Mm-hmm. In fact, our, our innovative leadership focus. One of the areas we talk about extensively is situational analysis. So, looking at myself, the culture, and the systems as a whole. And it is only through understanding all of the components that I as a leader know how to lead.
0: I think that's right, I would say one of the components though is followers, subordinates, other people, employees, stockholders again if you' depends on where you're leading okay. i can't say what those individual or group players would be, but it 's not just about it is about the context very much, as I said, I basically believe a third and a third and a third um, so um, you know, I just think it it should be a much more broadly a, based approach to teaching how to lead. And one, you know, another problem with the leadership industry, is usually we get people to think, gee, if I take this course, gee, if I go to this executive program, gee, if I have this trainer or this coach, in a few weeks I can learn how to be a leader. Uh, but, of course, we know real leadership work takes a very long time.
2: Mm-hmm. So, so you have me thinking I need to be more explicit about followers. In my mind, it's built in, but in the writing, it's not explicit enough.
0: Well, I I can't tell anybody else what to do. I can only tell you (laughs) that my own approach, and I think it's very much a 21st century approach, because Uh, followers don't shut up. You know, they don't fall into line. (laughs) They don't behave the way they used to. We're just, uh, whether it's Americans or people around the world, this is by no means an American phenomenon, and it's not purely a political phenomenon. Every statement that I'm making Uh, and have made in talking to you, Maureen, is applicable globally and is applicable across the different sectors. This is not particularly about the United States of America, nor is it particularly about politics or any other single sector. I tend to write and speak very broadly. The world has changed, and the leadership industry, by and large, has not changed with the world.
2: Which is exactly why I do what I do. Thank you. Let's go to break, and we will be right back with Barbara Kellerman.
1: Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. You are listening to innovative leaders driving thriving organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guests today, please call in to one 866 472 5790 That's one 866 472 5790 Or send an email to info at Metcalf-Associates.com. Now, back to this week's program.
2: So we've been talking about the changes in leadership and the requirement for followers or for leaders to to consider followers more extensively because followers have a bigger voice. So uh, let's get a little tactical. How... How do you advise leaders to do that? Not terribly tactical, but do you have some um, concrete recommendations?
0: Well, uh, I am sorry to give you what may sound like an evasive answer, Maureen, but any concrete recommendation I would have would grow out of the situation within which the leader – Uh, finds himself. In other words, again, what would work in one group in one country uh, would not necessarily work in another group or in another organization in another country or context. Um, I'm a big believer in not giving blanket pieces of advice. Uh, Are there some conventional wisdoms that are to be gained? Absolutely. Uh, But when it comes to specific advice, the only way, and I do this at the Kennedy School where I teach and I try in my various writings to do the same, which is to teach people not to turn to experts, quote, presumably like me, but to to use a framework that I might provide them for them to do their own analysis as, as to what might work in the situation in which they are. So this is much more, this is much less about giving somebody a fish than it is about teaching somebody how to do their own fishing. So they themselves are equipped much better than by focusing too much on the self to to analyze the question uh, and respond to the question that you pose by themselves because they have done an analysis and they have some more sophisticated understanding of what leading wisely and well in their particular circumstance might entail.
2: So do you have, I'm assuming, you have uh, put forth frameworks in your books? Yeah. I mean, I, you know,
0: I, I, uh, my book, the last book I wrote is called Hard Times, uh, which is all about the context. So it is this country, that the, I'm talking about the United States of America at this moment in time. Uh, the book that I'm writing right now is called Professionalizing Leadership, which is how one makes leadership more professional than it is now because by and large, it is not very professional, to put it politely. The book that I wrote called Followership talks about how we need to think about followers. Somehow we collapse them all into one basket. Oh, my followers. Oh, my employees. But we all know that the way to think about employees, for example, if we're talking about a a business, small or large, uh, is by by understanding that there are differences among the different employees. So what motivates, excites, inspires one group of employees or scares another or intimidates another group of employees, uh, those are different things. If you have 100 people working for you, uh, 30 of them might be one way, another 30 another way, and another 30. 30 plus another way. So uh, employees or stakeholders have to be analyzed, have to be understood, have to be motivated—not necessarily in the same way. So again, yeah, every book I've, every single book I've written, and there's lots of them, as I, as you probably know. Um, uh, include, yeah. By the way, women in leadership, and I, I mean I'm big in the liberal arts, and and uh, how the liberal, what the liberal arts have to say about leadership. I think one could do worse than read Shakespeare. About leadership, so uh, I'm all I'm across the board, Maureen, and every I would argue that every one of my books uh, really has lessons on how to lead. But those lessons need to be applied by individual leaders in their respective situations. And by the way, all of these roles are now fungible. So if I'm a leader. In one situation, no matter how important, no matter how much of a CEO, as I said, Donald Trump will find that to his, uh, to his irritation, I have no doubt. He thinks he's going to be able to tell people to do this or to the, do that, and guess what? It's not going to happen. So, uh, you know, we need to, we need to, equip ourselves by being intellectually aware of leadership as it functions in the 21st century, the differences between leadership today and even 10 years ago. Technology alone, the impact of technology, especially, as I said earlier, of social media on patterns of dominance and deference is huge. And those leaders who don't bother paying attention to technology or who don't have around them people who are highly sophisticated on the impact of technology and on the uses of technology are going to be left behind. So, again, not enough to do self-analysis. Got to understand the world in which we live.
2: So When you talk about evaluating followerships, what comes to mind is, typing, Myers-Briggs, DISC, or developmental levels, or by functional category, or by level in the organization, when you say you evaluate them, do you have a preferred, or is it uh, a series, or is it a bit of all?
0: Yeah, well, in, in the book Followership, I do have my own typology. First of all, very, very few people have written about Followers. Followership. Very good. You know, there's a billion books on leadership. There's three and a half on followers or followership. So there's very, very little literature. What I generally tell my students or my audiences is that they should determine, again, this sounds like I'm retreating to the same, uh, same template, which I actually am. How I'm going, I believe in dividing followers into different groups. How that's, so again, if I have 100 employees, I need to start to see them in somewhat different ways. They're not all the same. And it will be okay. to my advantage to have some understanding of who these 100 people or 1,000 or 10,000 people are. So they need to be broken up into in some category or some type okay. or some group. It's up to the individual leader or leadership team or executive team or human resources to figure out how this, these people should be divided. What is a logical way of dividing them uh, given the situation in which these leaders and followers are finding themselves? The way I divided them in followership was by level of engagement. So I had some followers Who were extremely active and extremely involved in the grouper organization. I had other followers who I called isolates who did very little. They would be in a Affect the kind of employee who simply punches a time clock but is in no other way engaged in the group or organization. I had another type of follower who was a bystander, who, met, who I characterize a bystander as somebody who is perfectly aware of what is going on but who chooses for whatever set of uh, personal or professional or political reasons not to become engaged. So I, did, in that, in the book, followership, I divided followers a certain way according to a top five different types. But that doesn't mean people have to follow my template. I, all I'm saying is I think it's a good idea to start breaking down people, who, your stakeholders, your followers, your constituents, whatever word you want to use, into different categories so you have a relatively highly developed understanding of who these people are, what motivates them, and how you're going to be able to get them, uh, get them on board with your particular leadership initiatives.
2: I like, as you were talking, I was thinking about the airline categories, so gold, silver, platinum, based on frequency Right versus vacation travelers uh-huh. So less about the again the typology of the human and more about what how they 're behaving at work right right
0: yeah, i mean again, again maureen how how people break them down you know if you 're running for political office these days, as you well know. Uh, A good political campaign will be a highly sophisticated political campaign, which means they have a highly sophisticated understanding of who the voters in their districts are. They they do that kind of work. People in the corporate sector, by and large, don't because they think they don't have to. But it's a big mistake.
2: In fact, again, when I'm coaching people, that's one of the things that is foundational to their success is I have to understand, and we take org charts and we plot them out and we look at how do you interact with your key stakeholders, whether they be employees or bosses or peers, how do I understand them, and we use different typologies depending on who the client is and what the presenting issue is. Yep, that makes Uh, a lot of sense. And then we create talking points and behavioral recommendations, and Mm -hmm. I've even had some of them, one of them in the front of his notebook had this little chart, and when he'd go into a meeting, he'd look at his recommendations based on who he's working with and adjust accordingly. Yep, That, that sounds reasonable. That, to me, is a good way of beginning
0: to break away from the focus on the self and to move toward a greater focus of, again, the situation, the task at hand, and indeed the other players.
2: Well, most of our our folks who are less than perfectly effective are fine when they sit in a room by themselves. It's when they interact with people. (laughs) Yeah, well,
0: leadership happens to be a two-person game at least. (laughs) It takes a minimum of two people to do that tango, and mostly it's not just two people but more. Um, So if you want to be able to bring them along without leaving a lot of blood on the floor, uh, you've got to figure out how to do it reasonably wisely and reasonably well.
2: So I like I like that we're talking about a framework because I'm assuming any of our listeners can think about who who are their constituents, whether they have followers or they're they're leading a project team but they don't actually manage people, but they still have groups of folks they're trying to influence. And so this framework right. this construct at least of categorizing helps any of us think about our stakeholders.
0: Yeah, and it also, by the way, uh, you know, this conversation, our conversation, I hope is not just about leadership but also about followership. It's also about peer-to-peer relationships. Uh, most of us work in situations where there's, uh, and even are in communities and situations
2: mm-hmm. where there's
0: some number of people and our relationships to these people are in every which direction. Most of us have somebody above us, they have somebody below us, they have somebody who's horizontal and our relationship to them is peer, <laughs> peer-to-peer, horizontal. So, uh, again, that needs to be understood. Most of us are not leaders all of the time, and indeed leaders, no matter how vaulted, have to be followers some of the time. We need to do a much, much better job of getting people to understand that in order to have the wheels turn uh, relatively friction-free, They need to collaborate and cooperate and go along some of the time and not just assume that every leadership moment is one where they are directive. The problems with groups and assemblages like Congress, it's not about a crisis of leadership, it's a crisis of followership. Everybody thinks these days they need to be a leader when in fact what people need to be socialized to do much better is to learn to get along and go along to be in some cases
2: a good supportive, vibrant follower, and not always a leader I think that 's a brilliant point, and let 's kind of move toward a close on that idea that all of us, no matter how senior we are in our organization, our government, our community do you have times where where we're not in charge? We may think we're in charge, but I think of many leaders who go home and they have a spouse and they have kids and they thought they were in charge until they they had children. (laughs) Well, there's that
0: and also in the workplace. You know, you think you're in charge and you find you're not in charge. You think you're in charge and suddenly you have a board member who's making your life difficult. Uh, So there is no such thing in this day and age as a leader who is fully in command and fully in control. Good leaders understand that sometimes they have to follow, and the fungibility of the leader and follower role
2: is one of the hallmarks,
0: characteristics of 21st century leadership.
2: So let's wrap up on that note. One, Barbara, thank you so much. I know you have a lot of people who are seeking your time, so I really appreciate that you're sharing your insights with with me and with our listeners, uh, let me sum up a couple of things that you've said and please jump in. One of the things I heard loud and clear is the idea that leaders don't lead all the time and yeah. that as a leader I need to focus on myself certainly, but um, mm-hmm. 30%. The other third, the other 66% is understanding the situation in which I'm operating and Shifting how I behave to align with what my followers and/or stakeholders and/or constituents need from me. So, so yeah, that sounds that now. sounds
0: an accurate reflection, Maureen, of some of the things that I said. Absolutely.
2: Do you have a website or a place that people can go to learn more about your work other than Well,
0: it- I I have a very active blog which however has crashed in the last month so but you can go to my blog site barbara com and lots and lots of blogs on all kinds of issues pertaining to leaders, followers and context and if you're interested in the leadership system in particular I wrote an article about that it's called it's not a person it's the system which appeared in the Journal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is called Daedalus, in the summer of 2016. So I have an article on that specifically that's just a couple of months old.
2: I would love for people to to read that as well. Part of what we're committed to is making resources available for, for folks to continue to grow their own capacity. So for our listeners, what I hope you have heard from Barbara is if not one or two areas where you can immediately put into place. Are you looking at yourself as a leader in the context of the system? Are you allowing yourself to follow when you should not be leading? Are you adjusting your behaviors Mm -hmm. required of the overall system, or are you taking a this is who I am and this is how I lead approach without tailoring to those with whom you operate. So I do encourage you to put into practice, find something you heard today, an experiment with it, and change how you lead. So this is Maureen Metcalf and Barbara Kellerman. You've been listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I would love to hear feedback from you. Email me at info at metcalf com, or on Facebook, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. We'd love to hear your feedback and the experiments you're doing to become more effective, and we will share those on air.
1: Thank you again for joining us this week.